you know what media narratives are like. They're like bamboo, by which, uh, on looking up bamboo and how it grows, <laughs> what he meant was, look, once these things get going, there's no stopping them. You can't, you can't kill them. Uh, I think, and、uh, I've been doing Vatican stuff for 25 years at least. I have never seen anything like this. One of the great things about working at the Acton Institute is that you have opportunity to meet and interact with some really impressive people, with really impressive intellects. And the voice that you just heard is one of them. That was George Weigel of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. I want to welcome you to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermas. Glad to be your host today on Radio Free Acton. Getting back to George Weigel,、uh, as I said, he is distinguished senior fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He currently holds their William E. Simon Chair in Catholic Studies. He、uh, may be best known as the author of Witness to Hope, the biography of Pope John Paul II, which was published. Doesn't seem like it could be this long ago, but all the way back in 1999, and、uh, has since gone on to be translated into 12 languages with a Chinese edition currently in progress. He's also author or editor of some 20 other books, including one of my favorites, *The Cube and the Cathedral*, which is a fantastic book. You should pick it up if you haven't had an opportunity to read that.、Uh, also,、uh, author of numerous essays, op-ed columns, and reviews that appear regularly in major opinion journals and newspapers across these United States. Frequent guest on television and radio, and he has his very own syndicated column titled *The Catholic Difference*, which is syndicated to 60 newspapers、uh, here in the U.S. And he's with us today here in the Acton Studios. And I thought, with a Catholic scholar of such eminence coming in to join us today, it would be good to bring in a few of our own Catholic scholars here at the Acton Institute. And so, joining、uh, George Weigel in studio today will be our very own president and co-founder, Father Robert Sirico. And moderating the discussion will be our director of research here at the Acton Institute, Dr. Samuel Gregg. And so, without further ado.、Uh, Nobody wants to listen to me talk today. Let's head over to Studio One and hand the microphone to Dr. Samuel Gregg. Well, Father Sirico and、uh, George Weigel, it's wonderful to have you here.、Uh, George, you're here to talk today to the, at the Acton Institute about Pope Francis and the modern papacy. So I thought I might start by asking、uh, you and Father Sirico.、Uh, we're now two years into Pope Francis's pontificate. In a sense, of course, the agenda of the Pope is the same: it's to preach the message of Jesus Christ and salvation. At the same time, every pontificate is a little different, and I'd be interested in hearing what you both have to say about what you see as the specific priorities of、uh, Francis's pontificate. It seems fairly clear that one priority is financial reform within the Roman Curia.、Uh, Pope Francis was elected in no small part because he was perceived to be、uh, a man who could clean up what was accurately perceived to be a serious mess、uh, in what Ronald Knox used to call the engine room、uh, of the bark of Peter, and I think he's made some significant progress on that、uh, front and has invested considerable time and authority in that. Uh, I think it's also clear that Pope Francis wants to put a A new face on、uh, the papacy, which he may have perceived to have been 
a bit distant from uh, people. Uh, and that accounts for what we might call the populist side of this uh, pontificate. Uh, and he is obviously investing a great deal of time and energy in issues of marriage and the family, which he correctly perceives to be in crisis throughout uh, the world, uh, and which he hopes the church's uh, settled teaching on the nature of the family and uh, marriage can uh, help heal. Father Robert. Well, of course, uh, I would echo all of those observations. Uh, the tension that I think um, we see uh, in this pontificate is the combined, and it really is the, the tension of the gospel itself. How does one express the truths of the gospel, the truths of the faith, and doing it uh, with great tenderness and, and love and emphasis on mercy? Uh, on the one hand, you know, this isn't anything new. It goes back to Jesus' encounter with the woman caught in the act of adultery. Uh, on the one hand, there was something about Jesus that misled the Pharisees to, into thinking that he would somehow justify uh, this woman's act of adultery. Uh, and on the other hand, he approaches her with great mercy. Now, what happens today is that we drop the last line of that gospel. Go and, and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Mm. You know, so uh, mercy and forgiveness cannot be understood except in a context of some kind of truth, some kind of moral truth. Uh, and tolerance is not um, acquiescence. It's not acceptance of everything. It, it's um, the embrace of, of love and seeing the bigger picture and that God uh, is at work in our lives. And I think this is an emphasis that the Pope wants to bring to bear. Uh, in his teaching, and not just his teaching, but also his uh, the, the very dramatic um, symbolism of his actions. Which brings me to, um, I think, a, a point that a lot of people have been puzzling about, and I know that both of you have reflected upon this in different venues, which is, on the one hand, you have, a, a, let's call it a media portrayal of Pope Francis. He says happy-go-lucky fellow from Argentina who's a little soft on moral questions, etc., etc. And then you have other people saying, well, no, actually, when you look at what he actually says, that's not the picture at all. So how do you account for this dissonance between what we might call um, the secular media understanding or p portrayal of Pope Francis and the reality of what he actually says? on something like this issue of mercy? Because when you look at what he says about mercy, he doesn't come across in the actual words as being this sort of, I tolerate everything for everyone. About a year into the pontificate, I called up an editor of a major American newspaper that will remain nameless. And I said, come on, what is the matter with you guys? You can do better than this. Uh, you're portraying this pope as Martin Luther in a white cassock. This doesn't make any sense. And he said to me, look, you're, you've been at this for a long time. You know what media narratives are like. They're like bamboo, by which uh, on looking up bamboo and how it grows, <laughs> what he meant was, look, once these things get going, there's no stopping them. You can't, you can't kill them. Uh, I think uh, – and I've been doing Vatican stuff for 25 years at least. I have never seen anything like this, uh, a world media that has turned Pope Francis into what I called in the Wall Street Journal a global Rorschach blot, 
uh, onto which are projected all sorts of fantasies, anxieties, hopes, fears, whatever. Uh, there have been some exceptions to that, uh, but in the main, this pontificate has been narrativized into uh, great confusion by uh, a world media that is determined to make him into its image and likeness, or its Im the image and likeness of its preferred pope. Uh, and it has to be said, a Vatican communications operation that has proven wholly incapable of responding to this uh, in not any a new way. It's not a new right. problem, but it becomes particularly difficult with a pope who you know, has the charming or disturbing, depending on your point of view, tendency to to be an Argentinian, which means to pop off and make right. kind right. of off-the-cuff uh, remarks. Um, uh, so that's, I think, what, what we're dealing with uh, here. Uh, and it has come to a particular point of absurdity in the battle of the blogs over the forthcoming encyclical on humanity and the natural world, uh, on which an ocean of ink uh, has been spilt over a document that none of the ink spillers have read or, <laughs> frankly, have any idea at right. all what's, what it's going to contain. Uh, in one weird sense, and I'd like to hear Father Sirico reflect on this, there's something good about this. I mean, the world is paying attention to the Catholic Church, and this ought to be an occasion to turn this toward what you said, uh, Sam, uh, an opportunity for evangelization. Um, uh, so well, I'd be interested in what Father Sirico has to say. Is there a good news in the curious bad news? Yeah, I, I think there can be, and I think that's where it becomes um, the— the obligation of more wiser heads uh, to exegete the, the, the Pope's message. But I think the way that's done, um, at the end of the day, I, I don't see the kind of documents coming out of this pontificate that came out of St. John Paul II or even Benedict. Uh, these were men of great intellectual uh, experience and accomplishment. And while the, this Pope is not in any sense, uh, simplistic. He is not, he's a pastor, he's not a scholar. And I think the thing to look for, the key, the hermeneutic, if you will, are going to be the gestures. I think those are the things that are going to remain. The, the memory of his kissing the man with the boils, um, those kind of embraces, uh, I think speak volumes. And they are the kind of message that, it's the kind of message that needs to be brought to bear uh, in combination with the teachings of the faith. And I think if these things can happen, um, then we can uh, see the good, the good side of this. The, the possibility of that gesture with the man with the boils becoming a kind of marker of the pontificate was, however, I think set by the wildly misinterpreted soundbite of soundbites in this pontificate, who am I to judge, yeah. which was turned into an all-purpose 
uh, interpretive key right. of the Pope really doesn't care about right. these issues. John Paul II kissed AIDS patients in Mother Teresa's hospice in Calcutta. Sure. Sure. I mean, the idea of popes not reaching out to people in, in situations of grave physical distress, there's nothing new about this. Right. But because John Paul II had been prepackaged as, you know, stern defender of doctrine, that tended not his gestures of, of pastoral tenderness tended to get blown off, whereas this man, uh, similar gestures, run through the filter of a misunderstanding of who am I to judge, right. uh, they may open up possibilities. But, Let's hope that they do. But, but consider this, though. Um, this, this long into his pontificate, John Paul II had very favorable media coverage. Um, great deal of misunderstanding, but he was on the ski slopes, uh, little... Um, Snippets about him needing the pool, so the we don't have enough. The athlete uh, leading the pool, the the whole teaching on human sexuality, uh, um, explaining the importance of the physical, the beauty of the physical, sacramental nature of marriage. All of these things, at about this far into the pontificate of John Paul, were deeply, uh, you know. Uh, Appreciated, and I think the media at that time had that narrative going. What happened was, as he settled into it and began to teach explicitly and not spontaneously, uh, the media turned uh, or attempted to turn on him. Uh, I think at the end of the day, we were in Rome when he, he died. At the end of the day, that narrative failed because the, re the reaction uh, of the world to this great man that lived among us was um, utterly astounding. Now, it may very well be the case that uh, Francis is, is setting the media up <laughs> for a, um, uh, a fall, you know, that when he uh, does teach more clearly— um, than he has, then um, there could be a, a reaction against him. We, we already see it in some of the more uh, liberal circles, uh, more progressive circles. Of, you know, he's, he's stayed firm, of course, uh, on women's ordination and, and the like. And this is not appreciated by... He's explicitly the, endorsed Humane Vitae at least three times yes, from my count. Yeah. yeah, he has, but it's interesting the way he's done it. Uh, John Paul II tried to give the church's teaching on the appropriate means of regulating fertility uh, a secure biblical, mm. philosophical, theological foundation through the theology of the body. Uh, Francis, in the several times when he's lifted up the witness of Paul VI in Humanae Vitae, has specifically cited it as a prophetic document against neo-Malthusianism. Jeffrey Sachs, for example. So there's no uh, reference to theology of the body. There's no reference to really what, you know, Paul VI's own argumentation, which was kind of old-school act-oriented 
Thomistic, uh, Aristotelian Thomistic philosophy and theology, there's rather this public dimension of uh, which the Pope referred to in the Philippines in January as ideological colonization. So that's interesting. Uh, it's distinctive. It's completely missed by most of the narrativizers. And, you know, short Father Robert of the Pope getting up and saying uh, something truly dramatic on the subject of, for example, so-called gay marriage, Mm -hmm. I don't think this filter is going to get changed. Um, How how would that sound when you say fairly dramatic? I mean, he certainly affirmed if the traditional would, understanding of marriage. Of course, but if he would say as Pope what he wrote to a group of, of cloistered nuns in Buenos Aires a year or so before his election as Pope, that About this whole yeah, that this whole uh, you know uh, program of redefining marriage is the work of Satan. I mean, if he if he would say that in Philadelphia. <laughs> Uh, now, even there, I'm not sure because he, you know, he might say it on a Sunday afternoon and everybody's watching football and nobody pays attention. But um, uh, I think this is there is so much investment now in maintaining the narrativized pope that mm-hmm. it would take something pretty uh, dramatically counter that to you know to. To break the fever and and get what I would think would be far more interesting going, and that is the the, the man in his full uh, complexity. Um, I've even noticed in the last uh, three Wednesday audiences where he's talked about marriage and the family, it's been completely ignored by the press because if you read what he says, it's pretty direct. It goes after gender theory, all sorts of things. But let me let me raise another thing, which um, you both alluded to, which is the Pope, of course, is coming to the United States this year. And as far as I know, he has spent very little, if any, time in the United States at all. I'm wondering what the two of you would say about what you think he brings to the United States, but also what you, if you're in a position to advise him, what would you suggest would be suitable topics for him to, to address? Uh, the Pope has never set foot in the United States. Uh, as far as I'm aware from my own reading of his work and from our personal conversations, both in Buenos Aires and in Rome, uh, he doesn't really know the United States very well. I, I expect he's trying to get up to speed on particularly the state of the church here, which, after all, is his primary uh, interest uh, in coming here. Uh, I'm told that the pope is very concerned that the Philadelphia World Meeting of Families, which he will attend, is going to get lost in the shuffle of his visit to Washington, where he'll meet the president, address his Congress, Congress, his visit to New York, where he'll talk uh, at the UN. Uh, That problem is going to be even more magnified now that the Holy See has seen fit to tack Cuba onto the front end of this whole uh, exercise. Um, I think Philadelphia is going to be a robust defense of marriage and the family as essential for human happiness, as essential for society, for civilization. I hope all of that gets heard. 
and I hope the Pope comes back from this experience, particularly the Philadelphia experience, with a sense of the vitality of the church in the United States. Compared to Europe, for example. Well, co or frankly, compared to Latin America, right. for example. I mean, if you are talking about the church in the modern world as envisioned by the Second Vatican Council, the church of the new evangelization as uh, proclaimed by John Paul II, uh, for all of its problems, the church in the United States is the best embodiment of that uh, in the developed world today. And I hope the Pope meets that, affirms that, uh, thanks those who have made enormous sacrifices over the past 35 years to build that, uh, and comes away thinking, yeah, there might be something here uh, for the church in the West, rest, particularly the rest of the first world, uh, to take uh, as a model. Because it, it seems to me, to, to connect this to the discussion of the Synod, there are now two models on offer uh, in the first world. There's the German model, which is essentially surrender to the zeitgeist and get the best deal you can. Uh, and there's the American model, which is convert the zeitgeist, convert the culture, uh, convert society, try to convert politics, defend religious freedom. Um, those are the two available models, and I hope he comes out of the United States thinking that only one of them really has a future. Father Robin. I, I would just um, add to what George has said about um, what the Pope will gain from his visit to the United States. And among the things that I would hope uh, is an encounter with faithful business people who are serious and well-formed in their faith, uh, and who are honest, uh, uh, working people who are creative and who, uh, in their creativity, provide jobs for people uh, who would not otherwise have them, who provide goods and services uh, that make the life of uh, the poor uh, a little easier. And I don't think, given his South American experience, in particular Argent Argentine experience, Argentina being an economic disaster by right, any standard. Right, and that, I won't say this across the board, but uh, when you meet uh, big business people in Argentina, they are usually in the hands of the government, or the government is in their hands. And uh, I think that kind of crony capitalism is what he thinks of when he thinks of all business people. Although, you know, in Evangelii Gaudium, there is that... Uh, really telling line that comes after all of the uh, denunciation of the invisible hand and the like, where he says, you know, business is a vocation, a noble vocation that can make the life of people better. And they need to do that. They need to grow their businesses. I hope he's going to say something like that when he's here as well. And I hope that when he leaves, he's going to have experienced uh, uh, some people who, who impress him with their, you know, their faith. Well, this brings me to the next topic, which, which will be our last one. And it touches on what you just said about business and the Pope's experience of Argentina. Now, some of us around this table have been, let's say we say, relatively critical of some of the Pope's economic pronouncements. I'm wondering what the two of you think in terms of the strengths of this pontificate that are, that are, that are clearly visible. What also you think might be the weaknesses and where more work needs to be done? I would say that, you know, his authenticity, his um, uh, sincerity uh, speaks uh, volumes. And I think that is undercut 
by his um, spontaneity at times. I think he hasn't thought out exactly how to say something. It's one thing to say it in a homily when you have, you know, um, 20 people at Mass. It's quite another to say it in front of the world's uh, media. And so I think those are two sides uh, of a coin that that his spontaneity on the one hand shows the warmth of his personality, the tenderness of his pastoral solicitude. But on the other hand, when he formulates um, spontaneous sentences, uh, you know, I, I was at a conference uh, with a group of bishops and I made the remark that I was concerned of having to watch the Vatican walk back a number of statements that the Pope has made. Now, everybody does that in public life. You you say something, you didn't quite say it the right way, but I have never seen it so many times. And George, you've been observing these things. Did you, anything near uh, this under the pontificate of John Paul or Benedict? And I, I said, I'm just really worried that, that when I get up in the morning that I'm going to have to say, well, what the Pope meant to say or what he was going to say or, you know, something like that. And the bishops knowingly chuckled uh, at that. I think the uh, great accomplishment of the pontificate so far is to have gotten a whole lot of people looking at the Catholic Church again who might have not been looking at it uh, before. Uh, the challenge that that poses is to explain to people that it's still the same gospel, it's still the same church, uh, it still has the same boundary markers. Uh, but come and come and take a look, look, look from inside. Uh, I am my biggest disappointment so far, frankly, has to do with the diplomacy of the Holy See. Uh, my impression is that uh, the Pope thinks. This is beyond his realm of competence. He's left. Are you thinking of Cuba in particular? I'm thinking of particularly of Ukraine and Russia, uh -huh. uh, which have been left to the professional diplomats of the Vatican, who frankly seem to have learned nothing over the past 38 years, from John Paul II in particular, and were right back to the old casserole Ostpolitik. Uh, do nothing to upset the Russians, and particularly the Russian Orthodox Church. This bears on some ecumenical confusions as well. And meanwhile, the largest of the Eastern Catholic Churches, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, is being left to dangle slowly in the wind in very, very difficult circumstances. Uh, so the Pope's willingness to, in some sense, kick over the traces in the Roman Curia and, uh, you know, have a real reboot has not extended to um, uh, its diplomacy. Uh, what was the problem with the Cuba business, it seems to me, is first of all, the Vatican claimed too much credit for something that both sides wanted to happen, and the Vatican provided a ground on which that could happen, but in no sense, I don't think, mediated the thing. And my concern is that with whether it's that or Iran or other matters, that uh, the di diplomats of the Holy See, in their rush to be relevant again on old-fashioned political terms, 
you know, turn the turn the Vatican into a kind of fallout shelter for the Obama administration. If things don't work, you know, well, we can duck under the shelter and let the shrapnel hit the uh, hit the Vatican. Uh, that's that's a dangerous uh, business to get uh, into. Uh, so I'm hoping that in the next uh, months and years of this pontificate, there will be a re-examination of those default positions uh, in the Secretary of State, in the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, um, and that would be useful. George Weigel, Father Robert Sirico, thank you very much. Thank you. It is said that all good things must come to an end. And this podcast is a good thing, and we have indeed reached the end. So it's time to say thank you. First of all, thank you to Dr. Samuel Gregg, our director of research here at the Acton Institute. He did a fine job moderating our discussion today, and we appreciate that very much. Thank you as well to Reverend Robert A. Sirico, our president and co-founder here at the Acton Institute, for joining us in the Acton Studios today. It's always good to see Father Robert down here in the studios. And thanks as well to George Weigel for uh, lending some of his insight to Radio Free Acton today. We appreciate it very much. We also appreciate uh, you and uh, all of our listeners to Radio Free Acton. You can find our podcast archives at radio.acton.org. And be sure to bookmark blog.acton.org as well if you have not done so already. Lots of great news, information, and commentary there on a daily basis from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Well, that's all for today, folks, and uh, we will see you again next time on future editions of Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's been good to be with you today. We'll see you next time. Bye.